A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by a dedicated and knowledgeable anonymous listener in honor of Jewish History Soundbites and the incredible work done by the podcast. So this is a an Elul-appropriate podcast. We're going to discuss a little bit about the Musser movement and how it uh, it arrives at the Mir Yeshiva in Poland. A little bit of background and a little bit about how it, it gets into the, um, infiltrates the yeshivas in general. Um, just uh, in the news uh, recently, there's this uh, new law of the Polish government uh, about um, about uh, unfortunate law, t- t- tragic in many ways about how um, they will not be allowing claims to to a property from before the war by any survivors or their descendants. And there's of course an overblown reaction by the Israeli government, and that that definitely is a great uh, story. So the Polish government is in the news, um, and of course it's Jewish history in the news. Um, because I, I don't like getting into politics, so I don't want to elaborate on it, but it reminded me of a story that's directly related to um, to the topic at hand, about the Muslim movement and Mir Yeshiva and El and, and everything together. So it's right into that context. There's there's this um, this this uh, story that's cited by Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the great Mashkiach of the Mir, and he cites it several times in uh, Shmuzin he delivered to the yeshiva uh, during El, and he actually used this lesson to prepare his students for Rosh Hashanah. And he relates a story, uh, a recent story. There was this event during that summer, or it even seems like it was several days before this Shmuz took place during El, that um, that the Polish Prime Minister visited the area, and the Mir Yeshiva, along with the town of Mir, and along with all the surrounding towns, they went out to greet him as befits uh, the, the head of state of the of the country, patriotic citizens. I think there's even a picture of Ibrahim and the others uh, out the, out in the, in, in, to greeting the, uh, the Polish prime minister. I think I went, saw that once or twice. Either way, so he uh, talks about how how he feels like uh, he has he has to level, level criticism at the reception. That uh, he he and his students uh, did did for the 
Polish Prime Minister, because he heard that in the nearby town of Karelitz, the women, the Polish peasant women, right, the, the regular, simple, non-Jewish uh, uh, Polish peasant women of the nearby town of Karelitz, that when the entourage of the Prime Minister arrived in the town, they threw themselves down in front of his whole motorcade, and they said uh, onto the road, literally in front of the uh, in front of the car, and they and they they yelled and they said, "We're not moving from here until the the Melech, in other words, the Prime Minister, until the uh, the uh, the head of state, he fulfills all the requests, all our requests, and gives us what we need, and and uh, and uh, provides for us whatever we need." And he said, that's the proper reception of a head of state, because you're signifying to the head of state that you can't have anything without him, that you're completely reliant on the head of state to provide you for your needs. And he said, that's what we're preparing for Rosh Hashanah, and we are trying to achieve Malchias, the kingship of God in the world, and we have to learn from the women of Karelitz, the Polish non-Jewish women of Karelitz, who defined for us what Malchius is, they really understood it, that, that, that the only way to greet a king is to tell him and to inform him and to express that you need him for everything and you can't, you can't live life without him, without him providing for your needs. So when you go on the trips to, to the mirror, in today in Belarus, so it's Belarus peasants, it's not uh, Polish, and we're not going to get into the whole population transfers at the end of World War, uh, at the end of World War II, and ethnic cleansing and a whole, you know, story and millions of people all over Eastern Europe and whatever. But uh, in those days, it was still Poland and before all those transfers. So we passed the town of Karelitz on trips and we would have never even heard of this shtetl if not for this story with Rabbi Yerucham. Yet now I pointed out on the road uh, right near Mir and uh, to, to bring out how Rabbi Yerucham used this illustration of current events, of Polish politics, of the non-Jewish uh, peasant women to illustrate a, you know, a Musser idea and to help his students prepare for Rosh Hashanah. And the irony of the story is that it's used by the protagonist to illustrate the Musser movement's ideal of El and preparation for the, the great day of Rosh Hashanah, and yet it is also an unintended expression of the very Hasidic idea of El, which is known as Melech Basadeh, of the king out in the countryside visiting the towns, during El, before he gets his coronation in the capital, uh, in, in, in the presidential palace in the capital city on Rosh Hashanah. So that's, that's a very Hasidic idea about how the closeness of the king during the weeks of El leading up to that coronation. So in one story, we have Moser, we have a Hasidic teaching, and it's all coming from Polish politics. So it's very time appropriate to discuss the Moser movement in the Mir Yeshiva. Now, the idea that we're going to talk about the Muslim movement arriving in the mirror assumes several assumptions, all of which must be clarified. Number one, the fact that there was a Muslim movement, uh, and for it to have gone anywhere, for it to have spread anywhere. So we have to def- define what classifies it as a movement, and how did it develop and, and, and become a movement. Um, and the second assumption is, is that it arrived in places like Mir. It arrived in yeshivas. Which yeshivas did it arrive in? When did it come to those places? Was it originally intended to be spread as an educational tool in yeshivas, or was it, uh, which is as is generally thought, 
Or was that a later development and it was originally had a, a different intended audience? Um, and then the third uh, assumption, of course, is that it arrived in Mir Yeshiva, which is the topic. And what does that mean? It arrived in the Mir Yeshiva. What was the Mir Yeshiva like before it had the Musser movement as part of its curriculum? And what changed with the arrival of Musser? And how did that change express itself? So all these three things need to be clarified. And the, the idea is, is that we refer to something as the Musser movement. And when Dove Katz wrote his... Uh, uh, multi-volume work, the Tnuas HaMusser, the Musser movement. He referred to it as a movement, and very often it is referred to it as such. Perhaps we need to say that it was a movement, but it never was a mass movement. Um, you know, unlike its counterpart, the Hasidic movement, unlike another counterpart at the, at the same time in the 19th century, the movement of Jewish nationalism, which eventually was the Zionist movement, um, that be- those became mass movements. It reached the people and it achieved critical mass at some point. Whereas the Musser movement, even if we can define it as a tnua, as a movement, but it never uh, reached uh, mass proportions. It was founded by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the middle of the 19th century. He wanted to to promote the idea of of an ethical code of conduct, of improvement of an ethical code of conduct, of studying certain works to achieve improvements in ethical conduct, to bring that to the national consciousness, and to um, and to uh, uh, um, educate the people. And he wanted to bring it to the masses, and he definitely targeted um, the laymen of the communities. He starts it in Vilna, and later in Kovna, in other words, in central cities, to, in the Russian Empire, what was Lithuania, which was a province in the Russian Empire at the time, and he opened the Musser houses, Bate Musser, in these cities, and he encouraged laymen. In other words, married, uh, he targeted the males, which was definitely all religious movements of that time in the 19th century, especially Jewish ones. Um, so, But he, he targeted adult ones with families, working people, who were, you know, led, led regular religious uh, Jewish lives, and he felt that this could be an added spiritual dimension to that life. That's who he was targeting, and that's who the intended audience was. Um, it never gained mass propor- pro- pro- uh, proportions, like I mentioned, but it, it, uh, it you know, it, it gained waves, the adherence, uh, in a limited scope, five or six or seven cities that opened houses of Musser in Rabbi Yisrael lifetime, and he produced several very impressive disciples who spread the ideals of the movement and became rabbis, in other towns and opened houses of Musser in those towns. So it, perhaps it, it, it did uh, achieve some social uh, impact um, and spiritual impact, um, even though it never reached uh, the masses. But then it does arrive in the yeshivas. It arrives in, in, uh, in one of the, in the third generation of the Musser movement, the Altar of Slabatka, Rabnasen Svi Finkel, when he starts the Slavatki Yeshiva, he makes it a Musser Yeshiva. He creates a Yeshiva in late 1870s, more in the 1880s, and it only reaches its its uh, you know real form in the last years of the 19th century with the anti-Musser revolt and the breaking off and the founding of the Slavatki Yeshiva, which I addressed once many long time ago, almost in the beginning of the Jewish history soundbites era. Um, but he he creates the first Musser yeshiva as a yeshiva, as in 
uh, a place, uh, an institution of, of education, of, of Talmudic study, of producing Torah leaders that also incorporated the ideals and the ideas and the methodology and the, uh, and the uh, thought process of the Muslim movement into its regular curriculum. So it becomes part of the Slavatki Yeshiva. Later on, Reb Finkel endeavors to spread it to other yeshivas. Um, he attempts to, several attempts in bringing it to Tells, um, which you know some some of those attempts were resisted, and then later on they're more successful. He opens a branch of Slabotka in Slutsk, and the Muslim movement spreads uh, through to other yeshivas as well. Slowly over the last decade, last years, excuse me, of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century, um, in 1896, the Novardic yeshiva um, opens by. The Altar of Novartic, Horowitz, and the Novartic uh, yeshiva becomes uh, also the epitome of a Musser yeshiva. And the uh, ideas of the Musser movement kind of spread to other yeshivas slowly but surely, with um, with them, you know, primarily being in Musser heavy Musser yeshivas like uh, Slavatka Novartic, but the the uh, ideas of having a mashgiach, of having a Musser seder, of of, of studying. Musser works do enter other yeshivas at the time as well, and it becomes more and more associated as an educational tool, as part of the Lithuanian-style yeshivas, and less so as a movement for the layman, as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter had originally intended. So that brings us to... So in other words, Alter Slobotkov does play a major role in, in this spreading, um, and um, there's, you know, it meets with a lot of controversy and a lot of opposition, and uh, th- that happens in several stages in Slabatka, and because of also the rise of Navardic, and later in, in, in the, the fights in, in Tells about incorporating Musser into the issue, which I've discussed and touched on in different uh, episodes. I'm just giving a quick summary. And that brings us to 1907, which is a bit of an interesting year because it's uh, shortly afterwards the failed 1905. Uh, revolution in Russia, and the, and the following the the when they crushed the revolution, the Tsarist forces they put down the revolution. The reactionary policies of Nikolai II and the Tsarist government, and the radicals have to go underground. And the Jewish street, which had been very radicalized uh, in the years leading up to the 1905 revolution, and it had infiltrated everywhere, including all the yeshivas. So it's much quieted down. A lot of them are arrested. A lot of them go underground and. And the wake of the um, 1905 revolution, there's a, a bit of, of, at least within the walls of yeshivas and, and, and established places like that, there was less of a open radicalization that there had been seen prior to the 1905 uh, revolution. And by now, as, as a result of that, and as a result of resolving a lot of the controversies, but a lot of the controversies that had rocked uh, Slabatka and Tells and other places which had involved the pro and anti musser factions, they had quieted down by now. And um, and, and, uh, and things were more established. Slobodka goes into its golden age. Uh, Navardic uh, is more successful. And the other great, large, and old yeshivas at this time are Radin and Mir. And the Musser movement reaches there um, at around this time as well. And Radin, it reached a drop earlier, 1904, Reb Naftali Trupp had been hired as the Rosh Hashiva, and he also brought with him the ideals of the Musser movement, even though he was not hired as the Mashkiach. He had studied in the great Musser uh, Talmud Torah of Kelm, 
and he attempts to incorporate the Musar curriculum into the Radhan Yeshiva structure, and he does so somewhat successfully. Um, and a few years later, in 1907, this year, this, this year that we're discussing, 1907, Rabbi Rucham Lubavitz, who was later to become famous as the Mashgiach and the Mir Yeshiva, was appointed Mashgiach in Radin. So the first official Mashgiach comes to Radin. He was the first, one of the, one of the earlier ones, definitely an early dynamic one, was appointed the Mashgiach in the Radin Yeshiva. In 1907, that same, same exact year, Rabbi Finkel, who was the son of the altar of Slobodka, this great mover and shaker and uh, of the Musar movement within the Lithuanian style yeshivas at the time. And he was the, so his son, Rebbe Finkel, had recently become the son-in-law uh, a couple of years earlier of Rebbe Baruch Kamai, who was the rabbi of the town of Mir, as well as the Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva in Mir. And he, uh, this Rebbe now that he's living by his father-in-law in Mir, he's appointed to an official position in the Mir Yeshiva in 1907. That same year, 1907, the Musser movement finally arrives in Mir. Perhaps it was due to the fact that Rebbe Yudel had more of a say in the yeshiva now. It's unclear, especially since Rebbe Yudel himself was not exactly like his father as a great uh, um, leader in the Musser movement. He was a great leader. He was a great Torah leader and a great Torah scholar and a great Rosh Yeshiva. Um, but it, perhaps it was due to that influence. Perhaps not. Perhaps there are other factors involved in the fact that the Mirishi wanted to add this, to add that to their educational curriculum because of the winds of change, because of the the protection that perhaps the study of Musr and that education to its students would offer in the light of the changing times and the radicalization of the Jewish street and the the uh, isms and the movements and nationalism that was floating around the, the Jewish communities of the Russian Empire at the time, perhaps that was a factor of them wanting Musser as an added, uh, as an added um, uh, boost to their uh, education as well. There are probably a combination of factors, as is usual in these types of circumstances. But in that same year, 1907, the first Mashgiach, uh, who is associated with the Musser movement, is appointed in the Mir, and the Mir officially becomes associated with the Musar movement as a result of that appointment. And this is a fellow by the name of Reb Zalman Dolinsky, a very special man who passed away at a very young age, so he's somewhat forgotten. He studied in Kelm, was a product of that great uh, furnace of the Musar movement. Reb Simcha Zissel Ziv, the altar of Kelm, he was a, you know, a student of his. Um, Reb Zalman Dolinsky's father was actually the rabbi in Raden, and he grew up in the town, so he was known as Zalman Radner. And he moves to Shavel following his marriage, and he opens up a, a makolet, a, a small grocery, which he and his wife operated. Um, but then he's appointed as an early mashgiach in Slavatka, where he was for several years until his appointment in the Mir to become the first mashgiach ever of the Mir Yeshiva. And he brings the Muslim movement to Mir. His family actually remained in Shavel. Um, so he, he, he only went home for holidays, but he you know, literally lived in the yeshiva, and he brings the ideas, ideas and ideals of the Muslim movement to the mir. To this, uh, to, 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 so the mir is one of the later yeshivas to receive it. Right? It tells the controversy that had taken place a decade earlier. Slavatka and Navardic, of course, were Muslim yeshivas. Radin and even had it already for several years from when Reb Naftali had arrived. And Slutsk, of course, was a branch of of Slobodka and Mir, the oldest, one of the oldest uh, yeshivas. Uh, it, took, it took a while to, to get in, but by 1907, uh, it uh, eventually, would, from then on, it would become firmly entrenched. 
Uh, Reb Zalmadolinsky himself, unfortunately, a year later, he contracted stomach cancer, and he slowly deteriorated. He had a feeding tube, and he would say uh, a Musser insight uh, into this feeding tube. He said he, he, he about himself, he, he related that he apparently had used his mouth for improper speech for his entire life, and now uh, he has a new mouth, in other words, his feeding tube that can't talk as a uh, retribution for that. That's how he saw a Musser insight in every act and throughout his life. Um, so he was sick for about three years until his passing at the age of 40 in 1910. So in 1910, the position of Mashkiach in, in this, in this uh, newly associated with the Musser movement, uh, Yeshiva, the mayor. And but by now it was part of the mere curriculum, so another mashkiach was sought out. As it happened, Rabbi Ruchel Lubavitz was now unemployed, as he had to leave his position in Raden. Uh, his charisma, and, uh, he was very charismatic, and people were incorrectly accusing him of taking the limelight away from the Chavitz Chaim, and that was the furthest thing that could possibly be from his intention. He always revered the Chavitz Chaim, and it's clear in his writings, where he, he's basically the only one who's quoted... Uh, literally tens and tens of times throughout uh, Rabbi Rucham's uh, Shmuzen. Um, so Rabbi Rucham, on his own accord, leaves Radin, and he's looking for a job. So he's hired to the position of Mashgiach in the Mir. And this is his first stint uh, as the Mashgiach there, and all's going well until a couple of years later, World War I breaks out, and the whole world comes to a halt. So while Mir, Yeshiva goes into exile and then ends up in Poltava in the Ukraine, Rabbi Rucham had, had one point went to take care of his family, who was still in Uzvant in Lithuania, and then he got stuck on the other side of the border. So when the Mir finally returned from its long exile, Rabbi Rucham was not able to return, so the Mir was on the market again for a new mashgiach. So for a short time, uh, Rabbi Srol Zalman Shlomovitz, who was a, a, a very interesting individual, served as the mashgiach, was a great man, he was later a rabbi in the town called Gunyuds near Bialystok, where he served until the Holocaust. He was in Lodz for a, a short time as well. Uh, he had a position there. Um, he was later famous because his daughter, uh, who was a graduate of Sarishnir's Krakow Seminary, Beis Yaakov, married another scion of the Musser movement, uh, Reb Nassan Vachtweigel. So he was a son-in-law of this Rabbi uh, Shlamovitz. And Reb Nassan Vachtweigel was ironically studied in Mir, a little after his future father-in-law left the place, and Reb Nassim was a student of Rabbi Rucham during his second and more famous tenure as the Meshgiach there. But before Rabbi Rucham comes back, we have another Meshgiach there, Rabbi Chatzka Levenstein, who was sort of a student of Rabbi Rucham Lvovitz. And later on, he served in Kletsk, and then he came back and kind of hung around the mirror uh, the town as another Musser, you know, towering Musser personality living in the town while not holding any official position in the yeshiva, this is while Rabbi Rucham is the mashgiach. And I mentioned that recently in the Lamja uh, uh, episode how Rabbi Chatzka later took a position in Petach Tikva, in, in, in Lamja there. Now, throughout all this time, Mir could be classified as a yeshiva which had joined the Musser movement kind of by default. Most yeshivas had by this point, especially following World War I, uh, even the ones who had been opposed to incorporating it into their regular day-to-day curriculum prior to World War I, did so after World War I. It would have been, so the Mir would really know different than most other Lithuanian-style yeshivas at this time, which all employed mashgichim, which all had the ideals of the Muslim movement were part of its structure. Even Valazhin, Valazhin post-World War I, Valazhin, which was the, the you know, had been opposed to uh, having uh, the Muslim movement as part of it, and there were several attempts over the over the years to have a uh, have a legend. And when Valajan was reopened 
for the second time. It was closed in 1892, it was reopened several years later, and then it was closed during World War One. and then it was reopened for the third time, second time, um, by Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, who was the son of Rabbi Fal Shapiro, and he reopened it in Valajan after World War One. It ended up being in the border of of, uh, of the of the Second Polish Republic, so he's able to reopen the yeshiva. See, he incorporates Musser into the curriculum, and he justified it as a need of the times. He he writes it in the introduction to his uh, sefer that he wrote, and he even hires Mashgichim, Rabbi Yitzchak Weinstein, who I think was associated with Navardak, and and Rabbi Adler later on. So there was even Valajan has Musser. So the mirror is at you know and not really. You know, it's kind of, you know, part associated, a very loose association with the movement. The big difference, uh, there's a big difference between a yeshiva that is loosely associated and a yeshiva like Slabatka or Navardic, which is a Musr yeshiva in its entirety. And that's, 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 you know, the world of a difference. If it's a Musr yeshiva, it's, you know, that's the entire educational philosophy of the yeshiva. It becomes a very major component of the yeshiva. Whereas in 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 these other yeshivas, including Mir, it's it just happens to be a, you know, a, a not very large or influential part of the identity or essence of the yeshiva's education or philosophy. And there's other examples of that as well. You have um, Kletsk, which is a famous yeshiva of Rabbi and Cutler, and of course there was a Musser Seder in the yeshiva, and there was a Mashkiach, Rabbi Yosef Leib Nednik, who was a, a, a very, you know, a very big impact and educational impact on the students in the yeshiva, but no one would go ahead and classify Kletsk as the ultimate Musr Yeshiva. And the same could be said even more so about Grudna, the Grudna Yeshiva, which is associated with Rib Shimon Shkup. There was also a Mashgiach there. His name was Rib Shalem Harkavi. And he was also had an impact on the students at the Yeshiva. But no one would go ahead and define the essence uh, as uh, of Grudna as the ultimate Musr Yeshivas. And similarly, in many other Yeshivas, it could be bring many other examples, and Mir would have, been, would have remained the same way and we would have never have looked at the Musser component uh, uh, in Mir uh, with more than just in passing. But in 1924, Rabbi Yerucham returns. He's able to make it back, and he becomes the Mashgiach in the Mir again. And that changes the identity and the essence of the Mir Yeshiva forever, because during the 12-year golden age that followed, not only did it become the largest and, and probably the greatest Lithuanian Yeshiva Lithuanian-style yeshiva in Eastern Europe. It also became the ultimate Musr yeshiva, where the Mashgiach, Rabbi Ruchim, was a central uh, charismatic figure. It had a specific Musr ideology, and the adherents, the students, became adherents to its Musr approach and philosophy, and it personified a Musr yeshiva to its very essence, because Rabbi Ruchim demanded it as such, and and the, uh, you know, and he was a great educator, and, and, uh, and teacher, and the force, the force of his personality, his charisma, his personal charisma, that people were very drawn to him. And the best and the brightest who came to the mirror became very devoted students of his, and and the Musser uh, um, ideas of his became very much the defining feature of Mir, and the, the defining feature of the the stamp, the education that they re- that one received. And you know, one day you, when you went to, uh, for instance, Kamenitz, People would say they would they get the derech halima, the style of the learning of Rabbi Ber. In Mir, uh, you know there were different styles of learning that were that were brought in. Had a lot of senior students who were students of Naftali uh, Trepp, who were students of Rabbi Ber, who were students of the Briskarav. That was an exchange program uh, between uh, Mir and, and Brisk uh, at the town, not a yeshiva, the kibbutz of the Briskarav and Brisk um, at the time. So they had all the different derech halimas, but people were going to the Mir because of its Musar approach. So it made it. 
uh, for all intents and purposes, more similar to Slabatka and Avardik, which at their very core became Moshe Yeshivas, which is very unique in the fact that there's almost no other yeshiva that was transformed into a Moshe Yeshiva, even though that was not the original intent. There were yeshivas that became associated with the movement, but uh, that it became this full transformation that, uh, that is somewhat unique to, to the Mir and because of uh, Rabbi Rucham and who he was and how he uh, had that type of an impact. Um, so Rabbi Rucham's passing in 1936 caused this uh, leadership vacuum. It was a co- kind of a complicated transfer of leadership. Um, Rabbi Lezi Yudel at one point uh, tried to have his son, uh, Rabbi Chaim Zevfinkel, who was at that time um, in in Palestine, he had founded a he was he was a student of his grandfather in the Altar of Slabatka, and he had been in Hebron, and he founded uh, after the Hebron Yeshiva closed in Hebron following the massacre in 1929. He and a group of other senior uh, students founded a branch of Slabatka in Tel Aviv that was called Heichal Hatalmud, and Reb Chaim Zev was one of the leaders of that group, and uh, so he was there in, in Tel Aviv in Heichal Hatalmud, and he you know was kind of brought to become the Mashgiach and the Mir and. The students did not like that. Uh, he was not seen as someone who can succeed Rabbi Rucham, so that uh, didn't work out without getting into too many details. And they, the students themselves of Rabbi Rucham, they thought perhaps that Rabbi Rucham's son, Rabbi Simcha Zisalavavitz, should be the one to continue his father's legacy and uh, and teachings. Um, he was still single. It wasn't seen as also appropriate, and that, that, that didn't work out either. So as a compromise candidate, they uh, brought back Rabbi Chatzka Levenstein, who was a you know much older and a senior student of Kelm and very close with Rabbi Rucham and had already previously had held a position in the yeshiva, so it was seen as a good compromise candidate uh, that that uh, all sides would would agree on at least for a temporary uh, stay until a, a further solution could be resolved in the future. So he was brought in. Uh, it was supposed to be for a five-year tenure. Of course, five years after 1936, 1941, they were already on their way to Shanghai. Rukhaskel stayed with them through the Shanghai years. But it was uh, you know, he was on a limited contract uh, time, uh, so he was brought back from uh, from Petach Tikva. But the, the you know the fire and the fervor of it being a Musri yeshiva were were gone at this point because uh, Rucham was seen as somewhat irreplaceable. So it never regained that Musr identity. Now it was just basically another yeshiva which was identified with the Musr movement. Um, it was not just another yeshiva in general. Of course, it was still the best and the greatest. But in 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 uh, as far as its Musar identity is concerned, which is the topic of our discussion today, it was uh, you know it was, it, it was not much more unique than than uh, than uh, following Rebbe passing as many other yeshivas were. Uh, surprisingly, though, a large number of Rebbe students survived the war in Shanghai. They were not overly successful at rehabilitating the Musar movement as a movement. Again, as a movement, uh, I, got, I got flack uh, once when I. When I said this at another time, in another context, uh, I got the um, uh, complaint that, what do you mean? The Musr still is, has been rehabilitated post-war. My yeshiva uh, learn, studies Musr every day, and we are very much a Musr yeshiva. So, of course, there are isolated places around the world that still study Musr, and there's lip service uh, paid in most yeshivas to having a Musr seder and having a mashkiach. But as a movement, as an ideological movement, as a, an educational philosophy, as as it a major part of a curriculum within the yeshiva, uh, so as a movement, as a as a, as a spiritual, uh, 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 you know, uh, religious uh, movement, um, like it was from Rabbi Shlomo time through you know through the interwar years, 
It did, did not have a great uh, success at rehabilitating itself in post-war United States or Israel, which, like I said, is a bit surprising since the greatest Muslim leader before the war, Birchum Lavovitz, had quite an abundance of uh, students, quite a number of students who survived the war and were part of the rebuilding of the Torah world after the war, but the Muslim movement uh, was not um, as a movement. Uh, which is something of a mystery to me. I still haven't quite figured it out. Hopefully one day I will. And considering that two other movements of the same time, the Zionist movement and the Hasidic movement, uh, achieved both bigger success as a mass movement prior to the war, to the war and ex- achieved rehabilitation post-war, the Muslim movement didn't either. It was not able to get a mass, to become a mass movement prior to the war, and it was not very successful at rehabilitating uh, post-war, so that is something that still needs uh, to be figured out a little bit, and we'll save that for another time. So this is Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, Yehuda at YehudiGabriel.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sp- sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed it.